day. I understand that. But there is a sense that, that reminds me of the Savior, that reminds me of salvation. There's a sense of, of turning over a new leaf, a new page, of, of out with the old and in with the new. And, and I know everywhere you turn, you know, all of the, all of the diet and exercise uh, uh, ads are everywhere. I understand that there's the talk about New Year's resolutions and, and, and that those type of things can be something that you do year after year and it's a worldly way. But, but there is a, there is a, a good and redeemable quality about, about the turning of the, of the calendar. The, the cleaning of a slate. And as I said, it reminds me of the gospel because God is a God of, of new beginnings. And, and who doesn't need a, a new start? I mean, you think about even the way that God has designed, uh, life and, and creation. Um, there is, there's no need for, for night in heaven. The sun, the Bible describes as, he's at the center of heaven and so his glory radiates and so it's, it's always day. Well, we, we, we live life here. Creation has day and then night. You, you go to sleep and you get up the next morning and it's a, a new day. And God tells us how He's different from us where He never sleeps, never slumbers. And He reminds us that His mercies are new to us every morning. They, they, they're, they're inexhaustible. God doesn't need to sleep like we do. He doesn't need a new beginning or a, or a, or a new start. He declares that He's the God who sits upon the throne in Revelation 21.5. Behold, I make all things new. Jesus Christ will make that declaration one day from, from the throne and inaugurate a time where everything will be new and there will be no need to remake anything because it will, be, it will be perfect. And the Bible says the ultimate new beginning for you as a, as a person is is salvation. It's, it's a new creation. Just as He spoke the world into existence and said, let there be light, Second Corinthians tells us, He says, let there be light in your heart, and a new creature, a new creation comes about. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. It's a, it's a hope-filled thought. I mean, the, the hope of the gospel to the sinner is that no matter what you've done, no matter how how bad your life has been, no matter how many times you you have you have failed in the in in the light of God's law, been crushed under the weight of the of the law of God, God can make all things new. That's that's hope, right? We, we're it, it's not about whether you're whether you're you're educated or whether you're smart or whether you you have abilities in and of yourself. The point of the gospel is you have no abilities in yourself, but God has all ability and He's already accomplished for you what He freely offers by, by, by grace. You, when you come to Jesus, He doesn't rework the old you. I'm really glad He doesn't rework the, the old you. It's a brand new creation. He gives new life through, through, through regeneration. It's the, it's the, playoff season for for the NFL and and I was I was thinking about about how uh, there's a sense in which a team gets new life it's fourth and and 15 and they get a new set of downs God doesn't give you a, a new set of downs in, in in life it's a it's a it's a whole new ball game and he's already won the game and you get to enjoy the victory 
that that Christ has 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 won. And I understand you may have to deal with things that have consequences because of because of sin, but you're a new creation. The Bible says there is no condemnation any longer. That there's no record of debt between you and 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 God. There's there's help for life every day. There's there's a new ability to love him, a new ability to resist sin that wasn't that wasn't there before. And all of that, every bit of that comes from God's grace. God exalts humble sinners and lavishes His grace upon them. That is the point. That is the gospel in the book of James. James by Martin Luther, one of the, one of the reformers, was, was called a strawy epistle because it talked a lot about works. It it, it didn't speak specifically of the, of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And some have said the gospel is not found in the book of James. And, and I, along with, with the Holy Spirit of God, would, would beg to differ. The gospel is, is, is right at the, the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 in the, in the book of James. It just focuses on, focuses on your position a position that you take as an individual in order to receive the, the, the grace of, of God. God gives grace to the humble and He resists the proud. James says God gives more grace. Uh, to me, that is a, that's, a, that's an astounding statement. I mean, God gives more grace. I mean, how can you get more grace than what God has already already shown to us in salvation. But, but James says that, that God gives more grace, and He gives grace to a certain type of person, a person who lives their life in a specific way, a person who, who orients their heart, orients their life in a, in, in a specific way toward God and, and, and toward, toward others. Grace is not something that's earned because you're a humble person. Grace is... Is something that God, God freely chooses to, to give. He, he shows His favor towards you, to do good to you and for you, for the, on the sole basis of His, of His free choice. It's, it's not because of what you would do or wouldn't do or what you've earned or what you, you didn't earn. He, he, he just, he just is, is gracious. He, he chooses to to lavish grace upon you because He's God and not because that, that, that we deserve it. I mean, that, that's the essence of grace, right? There's nothing about us that attracts God's, God's gracious favor. And, and, and I need grace. I need grace from God. I need grace from my wife. I need grace from my kids. I need grace from you. I need grace. I don't just need grace of salvation. I need grace to live today. I really do. I need grace to preach. I need grace to, to take this message and, and apply it to, to my life. I need grace for the failures of yesterday. I mean, even before I even began to preach this morning, as I was standing up here singing, Satan is reminding me of failures of, of yesterday and saying, you are, you are unworthy to proclaim truth. And whenever... I hear things like that, I just agree totally. You're absolutely right. I am not worthy. 
the Christ is. And I point to Him. He is my advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the, the righteous. I need grace to live to the rest of this day. I need grace to hope for, for tomorrow. And God gives this grace to, to those who humble themselves before the Lord. Those who are not self-sufficient. Those who don't see the Christian life as pulling themselves up by the bootstraps, but by seeing, seeing them, themselves as, as, as being dependent upon, upon the Lord. So this morning I want to bring together this, this, this grace that God has given us of, of, a, of a, an opportunity for a new start and this promise of new grace and encourage you in how to live a grace-filled life this, this, this coming year. So open your Bibles to the book of James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Now, we preached verse by verse through this book several years ago. And so if you want to hear all of the context up to chapter 4, you can go back and listen to that. But I do want to give you the theme and, and kind of show you what James is, is doing. Because we're, we're entering into the gospel part of, of James, if you will. And the theme of James is living faith. Faith that is alive. Living faith at work. What does true faith, what does genuine religion, as he would say, what does, what does faith that, that is saving faith look like? How does it work out in life? And through the entire book of James, he's been showing us what true religion looks like. He's, he's come to this place in chapter 4 where he's been describing Two kinds of people. It's, it's the kind of, of people who receive grace from God and the kind of people that God opposes. And he really reduces living into two categories, the proud and the humble. Nobody wants to be proud, everybody wants to be humble. But what does that look like to live a, a, a humble life? Living by worldly wisdom, living by spiritual wisdom. Everybody wants to live their life by spiritual wisdom. And nobody... Not a, any believer would say that they want to live by worldly wisdom, but what does that look like? He, he talks about living faith and, and then religious vanity. And while we're, we're woefully inadequate to live next year, even the next moment, James, James describes the kind of person who is exalted by grace. And because they're exalted by grace, they have a grace-filled life. You need a grace-filled life for 2014, for any day. I read somewhere this past week where, where, where someone said, I know we're not promised tomorrow, so we're not living presumptuously, but if you think of 2014, you have 365 blank pages that will be filled in some way. May it be filled with grace-filled living. Let's read James chapter 4. We begin in verse 10, pick up the, the closing thought there, and, and enter into the, to the, the passage that we're going to be in for the next two Sundays. He says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. He will exalt you. You humble yourself, you lower yourself, you rightly orient yourself, in the sight of the Lord, before the Lord, acknowledging who He is and, and where you stand and how you have need of Him and 
how he has no need of you, and he will exalt you. You lower yourself, God will raise you. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and able to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you don't know what will happen tomorrow. For, for what is your life? It is even a, a vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, instead you ought to live this way. If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming up upon you. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like a fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of your laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now, once you get past verse 10, there's some pretty strong words there. So how can this message be about a grace-filled life when it's... When it's really just, just a series of, of rebukes, it's a series of negative, series of negative commands. James keys in here on three areas that you can use as, as indicators of whether we're people who are going to receive the grace of God or not. James says a grace-filled life dwells in the land of humility and breathes the air of the gospel. And that will be evident in our speech, our planning, and our use of resources. He keys in on these three areas. How we treat others, in verses 11 and 12. How we plan our days, in verses 13 through 17. And how we use our things, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. He talks about how to live a grace-filled life, and... And he keys in on these three areas. He says, don't give arrogant appraisals. Don't be presumptuous in living. And don't squander your resources. How you treat others, how you plan your days, and how you use your things. In every one of those areas, you're to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will exalt you by pouring out grace, a grace-filled life. So I want to look at the first one this morning. How you, how you treat others. And I would summarize verses 11 through 12 is you treat others with the same grace that you need. You won't find that up there. But I would summarize 
what, what he's saying in these negative commands in verse 11 and 12, how you treat others, you treat others with the same grace that you need. That makes sense, doesn't it? Treat others with the same grace that, that you need. I mean, your mommy taught you whenever you were a child not to point fingers at other people because when you do, you have three fingers pointing back at you. You treat other people with the same grace that you, you need. I mean, if we were able to do that, life would be a whole lot, a whole lot easier. God says He gives grace to people. He gives grace to gracious people. He gives grace to people who humble themselves in the sight of the Lord. How do you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord in the way that you treat others? You treat others with the same grace that you need. That's how you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And you have to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord to do that because other people at times deserve judgment rather than grace. They will sin against you. They'll do hurtful things to you. They'll neglect you. They'll... They'll not meet a need, whatever it might be. And everything in you, the sense will be to, to retaliate. And yet you treat them with the same grace that, that you need. If you want a grace-filled life, you must give the same grace to others, not do what's described in verses 11 and, and, and 12. Look, if you would, at... At verse 11, he says, Do not speak evil of one another. Here's the opposite of treating someone with grace, the same grace that you need. Don't speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. You're sitting above it. There is one who sits above it. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to, to, to judge another? <clears throat> Now this this passage, these con, the concept of judgment is is just it's just ripe with an opportunity to to misinterpret because everything you hear in 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 the world today says judging is a is an evil thing. Judge not, lest you be judged. And and what they're really saying is don't draw any conclusions about anyone or anything, which is not what the Bible is is talking about. Talking about here. This is a negative command after he gives ten imperatives. It's a negative command. Do not speak against one another. And he adds judging as well. Look at verse 11. Watch how he correlates this. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother. He puts speaking evil and judging on the same plane. He, he equates the two. It's a command indicating that they're doing it. Stop, is what he's saying. Stop doing this. And James has already talked extensively about how to use the poor use of the tongue in, in James chapter 3. And now he's going to draw the attention to the root of the offense, of, of, of why we, we use the tongue wrongly. And it has to do with an arrogant appraisal. An arrogant appraisal of yourself and an arrogant appraisal of God. He addresses two abuses here, speaking evil and judging. The first word that he uses here to speak evil literally means to speak against. <clears throat> the word evil is not used in, in, in the original language. It just means to speak against. It's, it's, it's two words put together. 
it's used several times in the New Testament in Ephesians 4.31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking or kata or speaking against, let that be put away from you with all malice. It's a, it's a common expression meaning to run another person down or... It's translated evil because to speak down or against is is what the person would be doing, and that's an evil thing to do. So it's speaking in a way that has that has a has a harmful effect. It's a harmful kind of talk that's aimed at eroding a person's position in the eyes of another. It's engaging in a conversation with someone else, and the center of the conversation is another person. So you have two people talking, and the and the the topic of the conversation is another person. You're the one who's doing the speaking, and this other person walks away from the conversation with with a less favorable opinion of the person that you're talking about. You you spoke against them, and he says that's a that's an evil thing to do. It's a harmful kind of talk. It's to it's to it's to tear down another person's position to tear down another person's character in the eyes of, uh, of another individual and to do that on, on purpose. Now, I think, for me at least, the, the, the easy forms of this kind of speech to identify is, is slander and gossip. You know, I mean, everybody talks about Everybody knows about slander and, and gossip, but it's not limited to that. Slander is to make false charges against someone else. It's to, it's to say something about someone that's, that's untrue. Gossip is to speak that which may be true, just at the wrong place at the wrong time, for the wrong reason. James is talking about slander. He's talking about gossip. He's talking about false accusations. He's talking about an exaggeration of a person's faults that may be real. He's talking about needless repetition of faults. In every case... Speaking against them, the goal is to bring the person down, to bring them down in the eyes of, of others. And he puts right along with that, judging your, your brother. Which is why he, he uses it interchangeably, because they, they have the same concept. In order to say slanderous things about another, you have to weigh them by, by your own scale. You have to draw a conclusion about where they stand. Repeat that, that, that conclusion. And James says that, that the problem with that should be obvious. We who are weighing have no business doing the weighing because we're not God. And we don't really, as I said, think of judging as... Is a negative thing. Judge not, lest you be judged. But as I said, judging doesn't always carry a sinful idea in Scriptures. John seven twenty four. Jesus said, "Judge with a righteous judgment." You have to draw conclusions in life, even about others at times. What we're warned not to do is judge in a hypocritical way, and you must do it with the, the same grace that that you need. What does Galatians six one say? You who are spiritual. Restore a person who's been overtaken in a fault, considering yourself. That would be speaking about someone in a, in a grace-filled way, in a humble way. It's, I'm considering myself. I'm, I'm repeating this because I have to repeat it because of whatever 
the specific reason may be, but I'm doing it in a way where I'm considering myself. I'm not intentionally speaking against them. I am not intentionally elevating myself above them and drawing a conclusion in a proudful way. There is speech that doesn't build up. It tears down. And there's, there's a judgment not for the purpose of discernment, but, but for evil intent. He says, don't judge your brother. The wrong judgment that he's talking about here has the wrong standard. Your interpretation, not God's Word. And the sin there is going beyond the text. It's, it's done from the wrong position. You're not doing it as one under the law. You're, you're elevating yourself above the law and above your brother. And the sin there is taking God's place. And it's done with the wrong attitude. Which is to, to weigh the person out in order to bring them to bring them down. I mean, you know in your heart whenever you're, you're saying something reluctantly, you're saying something because you have to, or whether you're taking an opportunity to displace that person in the eyes of, of someone else. And all of that comes out in, in, in speech. And when we judge like that, we don't just do that in our hearts when we speak about another person. We, we involve others and. James says that all of that centers on an arrogant appraisal. Look, if you would, at the, the rest part of the rest of the part of verse eleven. Don't speak evil. Here's the command of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother judges his brother. Third time that he's mentioned that. I'll show you why in a minute. When he does that, he speaks evil of the law and judges the law. He draws a conclusion. He tells you specifically. Why it's wrong, why he gives this command not to speak evil and not to judge. Because when you do that, you're not speaking just evil about a brother or about a person. You're speaking evil of the law and you're judging the law. James says when you speak against your brother, you assume a position that only belongs to God and and his law. And he explains that with with the law first. He says he speaks evil of the law. When you speak against your brother, you you judge the law instead of it judging judging you. And And there's three arrogant conclusions. You speak against the law, you judge the law, and you break the law. Look, if you would, at the rest of verse 11. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law. You're not a doer of the law, you're You're a judge. I mean, you break the law. You, you speak against the law, you judge the law, and you, you break the law. That's what you do whenever you, you tear somebody down with your, your tongue or you, or you judge them. You usually think of speaking against another as being unloving or hurtful toward them. But James says it's much deeper than that. The offended party is not just the person you're speaking against. You, you first offend God's law, and then ultimately you offend Him. And that's where He's going to end in this passage. And you speak against your brother, you, you judge the law instead of the law judging you. He uses brethren once in verse 11 and brother twice. You see that? Three times. That's purposeful. He says a brother and his brother. And by doing that, James is reminding us of our equal position under the law. 
who am I to speak against someone else when I'm in the same condition and in need of the same grace? He's saying when you speak against, you're speaking against your brother. You're speaking against another son of Adam. You're speaking against somebody who is just like you. You're just like them. He's reminding them of their equal position. In fact, the relationship to the law, the fact that they're, that they're under the law is, is, is because they're, they're in covenant with God. And we're both in the, in the, in the same position. Both are in covenant with God as Christ followers, and you don't call an unbeliever brother, but you do call one of one of those who follows Christ as a as a brother. And both brothers are protected by the law. Both brothers are under the law, and both brothers are protected by the law. And the law speaks about speaking evil, and it speaks about. Judging. The law regulates how we live with each other. So the law protects us from slanderous speech and unjust judgments. And so when we speak against another brother or sister, we elevate ourselves into a position above the law. And we speak against it. Here's what we're saying, basically. The rules don't apply to me. I mean, if God has said... Every person is under my law. Every person has violated my law. Every person has broken my law. And you're both brothers in the covenant. Then to somehow say that doesn't apply to you, elevate yourself above the law, is to, is to conclude it doesn't apply to me. It's to judge it. It's to, to determine it doesn't apply. It's to, it's to weigh the law in the balance and say that doesn't apply in this situation. It's an arrogant appraisal of both another person and, and the law. And you, I mean, we can't stand it whenever people, when people do that. We cry, it's unjust. I mean, how many times have you been sitting somewhere and, and you, you, you see the, the volunteer fireman, sorry, Randy Wood, turn on his red light and go through the, the stoplight and you're sitting there wondering yourself, I wonder if there's really a fire. He just got tired of sitting there, you know? Or the politician who preaches that, that you need to help the economy by making hard choices and then he takes lavish vacations. Or the, or the one who preaches about global warming and then zooms across the country in a, in a jet. I mean, you're sitting there going, do what? I mean, we don't like that, that concept, that idea. God says that's exactly the way you come across to Him and others. Whenever you make hypocritical judgments of people, unjust judgments of people, or speak against them as if they don't need grace rather than giving them grace, because you're the one who, who needs grace as well. We treat others, we should treat others with the same grace that, that we need. But James says, you judge the law, And what he means by that is you render a judgment about the law itself. He says, when we know the law says love your brother and don't speak evil against him, but you do that anyway, you're judging that portion of the law as unworthy of obedience. And you probably have a good reason in your mind. I see no need for that. God can't... 
if God could see the way he's acting that he deserves, then he would, he would also conclude that he deserves what, what I'm saying about that person. God must understand this case because if he did, he would agree with me that my brother needs to be criticized in, in this case. You're looking at the perfect law of God and determining there must be something imperfect about it in it. As if it really needs us to properly interpret it in this particular case. We're sitting in seat above our brother rather than alongside our brother. We're making judgments about the law itself because of what the law says. And in fact, we are breaking the law. Into verse 11. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. He moves from changing position from beside your brother to presiding over him to violating the, the, the law yourself. I mean, you and I are speak, when we speak against our brother, it's not just assessing ourselves differently, we're, we're disregarding the law's authority in our own life, and, and we're breaking it. Instead of remaining under the law as a humble doer, you, we elevate ourselves, make ourselves superior to it, and pass judgment and assume a position that is to be held by God alone. Look at verse 12. He says, There is one lawgiver, who is able to save and who is able to destroy. You elevate yourself and you rival God for His his position. I mean, how many times have I just drawn an unjust conclusion about somebody not knowing all of the details? I've weighed them on my scale. I've spoken evil against them in in some specific way, and I, and I really think that that's where it ends. James is showing us, God is showing us that it goes much deeper than that. It's, it's actually challenging of God for His, for His position. It shows why it's so sinful. It's not just because you fail to see that you need grace as well, but... The arrogance displays itself before God. There's one lawgiver who is able to save and who is able to to destroy. And, and when you judge the law, you're deciding what only God can do. And your actions are an attack upon His, his position. The sense here is there is one lawgiver. And it's not you. It's the Lord. He's the one lawgiver. He's the one judge. He alone has the right to sit above all, rendering a perfect assessment. Because He alone can see the heart in a a perfect mind. Our assessments are so insufficient. I shared with you the time that before years ago, I think the Lord taught me uh, this lesson, whenever I was a youth pastor at a, at a youth camp, 
and the normal guy that came and did our music didn't show up that that year, was unable to do so. And, and I was in the position at the end of this couple comes that I don't really know, and, and I'm in the position of, of, uh, of, in, of being in charge of them. So they come, and the speaker comes, and, and he does an outstanding job, and they, you know, they did okay with, you know, with the music. It wasn't anything where, where it was something to write home to mother about, but they, they, they did a sufficient job. And I can remember whenever they pulled in, not knowing anything about them, they, they pulled in in a, uh, in, in a very expensive car. And I remember they were young and they were pretty and, and they got out and, and, and my, immediately my, my, my heart judged them unjustly. Immediately I began to evaluate this couple that I didn't know anything about on the basis of the way they looked, on the basis of what they were driving, and, and I, I drew conclusions. And I carried those conclusions throughout the entire week. Every time they got up to sing, every time they, they gave testimony. I can remember him giving testimony about, about how difficult it was whenever they were in seminary. They were, they were, in, they were in seminary. And I can, just, I can remember thinking, yeah, it looks like it's really difficult. You know? And I carried that with me through the whole week. And I remember the way that the Lord just, just brought me low and rebuked me. I mean, I was doing exactly what James is is saying here. It was time at the end of the week to make payment to the to the to the preacher and to the ones who, who led the music in order to help cover their cover their expenses and, and I had a set amount of money. I forget what it was. I want to say it was like twelve hundred dollars or something like that. And I'm going to divide it up. Now, I know the speaker and I know his life and I know that he had real needs and I've already assessed the others and they probably don't have a whole lot of needs. So here's the way I want to divide the money. And pastor, I went to my pastor and I said, you know, here's the deal. I'd like to give I'd like to give the speaker uh, you know, a thousand bucks and I'd like to give the singers two hundred. And and he he says, uh, you know, why? Why why are you splitting it up that way? I said, Well, you know, I mean, look at what they're driving. And um and I can remember him quoting scripture to me. He says he says, Brian, you may not know everything's going on in their life, and the labor is worthy of his hire. So I would not base he said, I'll leave it up to you. Uh but I would not base what you give them upon their their looks or I would go according to scripture. And I really struggled with that, but I thought, well, okay, my pastor says that, so that's probably you know what I should what I should do and, and I divvied the money up like I normally would, like I would have if it was the other guy who who came and I can remember the speaker coming to me later, just thanking me for profusely for for the, the gift to the to the singer. And he said, You know, you probably don't know this, but um I have a really, really rough life. Uh, the guy was uh uh, comes from a comes from a very broken home. The Lord saved him. I mean, it's like living on the street. I don't remember the the circumstances. Really destitute, and the only reason he's in seminary is because he's a benefactor, somebody that's paying for him. And um, you know, and and a lot of people look at that car and think that you know, wow, they have money, but that was actually given to them by by somebody else, and that's the only thing that that they drove. I think the guy lived in it for a while, and of course, with each piece of information that he gives me, you know, I'm, I'm going like this. 
feeling about, about that tall. But, you know, if I look at the application of what James is saying here, rather than, rather than looking at that, that individual and drawing and saying, I'm unable to draw conclusions, I went ahead and drew conclusions on a faulty scale. And then I began to make decisions as the judge upon what they deserved or what they didn't deserve based upon that, that faulty scale. And James says, don't do that. There's one lawgiver. There's one who is able to see all and, and, and do all. You ever took up for someone? I mean, an opposite illustration. You ever taken up for someone only to find out that they weren't, they weren't what they were supposed to be? You defended them? You see it on TV all the time where, you know, the, the mother or the father makes a plea weeping to help find their child only to find out later they're the ones who took the child's life. A temporary duping never happens to God. never happens with God. He knows all from beginning to end. There's nothing hidden from His sight. He, he knows whether you're a fraud or, or not, and His evaluation is is perfect. He not only made the law, he can, remember, he can render a perfect judgment. That's what it means here. He's able to save and He's able to destroy. And He does that justly. He does that rightly. And when we speak against or judge our brother, we're, we're not only saying to God and to others, I see no point in what the law says. We're saying, I will decide what is right. And even worse, here's the punishment I will measure out. I'll tear them down. They need to be knocked down a little bit. And that's an arrogant appraisal. Look back at verse 7 of James 4, because this is very cutting. Here is ten positive commands before he gets to these three negative commands. Therefore, submit to God and resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament, weep, and mourn. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he'll, he'll lift you up. So there's the positive commands and now here's the negative. Don't speak evil against your... Your brother. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil. Don't speak evil of, a, of, another, of one another, brethren. When we commit the sin of verses 11 and 12, we're, we're behaving just like the devil who the Bible says is an accuser of the brethren. Satan said, I will ascend above the throne of God and in his position Satan's also called the accuser of the brethren. He slanders us before God night and day. He repeats our faults, exaggerates our failures. And the humble resist the devil and resist being like the devil. But the proud act like him by speaking against their brothers and pretending to rise above God and rise above His law. And if that 
wasn't enough. If there wasn't enough hammer blows there, he just drills down. He ends with this, this last statement that is just particularly stinging. The end of verse 12. Who are you to judge another? For you is in the emphatic position. Who are you to judge? Here's who God is. He's the one lawgiver. He's able to save and to destroy. He can give righteous judgments. Who are you to do that? Aren't you a sinner in need of the same grace? Who are who are you? Who am I to think for one second that we could come out from under the law, rise above the throne of God, and think somebody is act as if I'm greater than someone else when I need grace myself? When we do that, we're acting as if we have the same authority to save and power to destroy with our judgment and our tongue. And, and the obvious answer is no one. I'm not the Lord. And so I humble myself under the, under the hand of God in the way that I treat others. And God exalts you and, and lifts, you, lifts you up. It's an arrogant appraisal that rejects the law and elevates yourself to the to the, to the place of God. We'll look probably tonight or uh, next Sunday morning as in how we, how we plan our days. Would you bow your heads with me? Proud people don't live a grace-filled life because they don't think they need grace. They embrace self-sufficiency, which leads to further sin. How about deciding today to ask God to help help you look closely over the next two Sundays at how you treat others and how you plan your days and how you use your things? How about if you, you're even listening this morning and you, you say, man, I'm guilty, I... See, that's a tendency that I have. It's, a, it's part of my life. It's, it becomes far too natural to me to do these kind of things. How about you do exactly what verse 10 says? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. You know how the Lord will respond to you? He'll lift you up. He'll pour out grace. Because He is gracious.